All right, I think that's it. For, that's it for announcements. Um, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure we're in fellowship and ready to study the word. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can be here this evening to reflect upon your word and to continue to be challenged in terms of our own understanding of your word, understanding of the Old Testament, understanding of how to present the gospel in an accurate and challenging way to those who do not yet understand who Jesus Christ is and what he did for us on the cross. Father, we pray that as we continue this study of Paul's a sermon in Pisidian Antioch that you would help us to put these things together and understand these uh, various passages from the Old Testament. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Acts 13, continuing to work our way through Paul's presentation of the gospel into the uh, uh, Jews in Pisidian Antioch. Now, if you put your pl- yourself in their place, they were hearing this for the first time. They had not heard anything probably about Jesus or the claims of, uh, of Jesus to be the Messiah. And they have invited the Apostle Paul, because he is a, treated as a visiting rabbi, to give them a report from Jerusalem and to inform them of whatever, uh, to bring a, something else, a teaching from the Word, from the Torah, uh, to the congregation. And in that, he gives a review of God's plan for Israel. He goes to the Abrahamic covenant, he touches on the Davidic covenant, and he brings things together in terms of God's promise to David to have a descendant of David who will be on the throne of David forever. Starting in verse 32, I pointed out that he is focusing on the gospel. Now, this is really important. There's tangential issues. I pointed out a couple of them the other day, uh, when the last lesson, I believe, or maybe it was the one before, that there has been a an issue related to, several issues related to the gospel. On the one hand, there has been a challenge to free grace from one spectrum of evangelicalism, and that pres- their presentation of the gospel has been labeled as lordship salvation. Lordship salvation, in a nutshell, does not necessarily say you have to make Jesus Christ Lord of your life. That's one manifestation of it. The real, the real core of lordship salvation is the idea that if you are truly regenerate, then you are going to produce fruit that is consistent with regeneration, and you will live a certain way and that basically has come to be called fruit inspection. And that you can somehow quantify your this fruit so that you can look at your lifestyle or life change or absence of sin, some sort of change, as the validation of your belief that you are saved. On the other hand, you have the position that has come to be called free grace, which for some people has is a redundancy, but that's because many people use the term grace in a manner that is not free. 
For example, Lordship people firmly believe in grace. Roman Catholics firmly believe in grace. Uh, many others firmly believe in grace. But as one Roman Catholic lady told me one time, you're earning a lot of grace. I shook my head over that. Uh, you can't earn grace. Grace is something by definition is freely given. So we had this, we've consistently had this distinction among Christians from time immemorial. It's not just a modern manifestation, but the modern manifestation has been crystallized and clarified uh, in terms of certain debates. And in the history of this, in the late 70s, early 80s, it became crystallized by specifically the writings of Zane Hodges, who really took a a, a specific uh, confrontational approach in, an, in, a, in a, several really good books, analyzing the scriptural interpretations of the lordship crowd, specifically John MacArthur, but also numerous others, that most of whom were in the Calvinistic camp. Now, it's been kind of a misnomer and a mischaracterization by uh, many people in the uh, grace camp to try to say, well, all Calvinism is lordship. Actually, there have been numerous movements within four- and five-point Calvinism since the 16th century that have not held to the lordship approach to the fifth point of of a Calvinism, the P and TULIP. TULIP is the acronym for the five points of Calvinism, total depravity, unconditional election, or excuse, yes, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the P is for the perseverance of the saints. In their view, the saint who is truly regenerate will persevere in being faithful or enduring in his faith in Christ. He's not going to uh, give it up. He's not going to finally reject Christ. He's not going to commit certain sins continuously, but he will, if he is truly saved, it, regeneration somehow limits his sin nature. Now, there's no real support from this from Scripture. It's really a theological deduction from their definition of regeneration. But there are many other Calvinists. Lewis Berry Chafer was one. Uh, many others who believed that the P in perseverance was Christ persevered in keeping us saved, which is how many of us would understand eternal security. And that were the, that view was a dominant view among many Calvinists. So it's just been in the last, I would say, 40 or 50 years that among Calvinists, the the perseverance lordship crowd has become the dominant uh, teaching or thinking within within uh, Calvinism. So lordship's a big battle. But on the other hand, we had the free grace movement, and unfortunately, within the free grace movement. There's been another split, another conflict over the gospel. And it has to do with the understanding that Zane Hodges himself had of the gospel, which was not always clear to people who read him because it's easy to read into someone's statement of the gospel that's fairly close to being on target, uh, are a correct understanding of the gospel when the issue that's are, that's being addressed on the page of the commentary or whatever is is focusing on uh, analyzing and understanding a distortion related to lordship salvation. But it became clear about 10 or 12 years ago that Zane had always had a rather odd view of the gospel, that the gospel was simply the offer of eternal life by Jesus, and he goes to a couple of passages in John as his support. And, of course, these statements were made before Jesus went to the cross, so they would not be passages that focused on the cross. They were passages that focused on Jesus' offer of eternal life to Jews in a dispensation that was prior to his final payment of the cross. So as far as Zane was concerned... The gospel was an understanding that Jesus could accomplish what he promised to accomplish, which was to give eternal life, that you were believing him for eternal life, and that because what Jesus was giving was eternal life, 
that meant, embedded within the definition of eternal, that it was not a life that could be lost or taken away. Now, where that went was that if you didn't have an understanding that the life you were getting when you believed in Jesus was something you couldn't lose, then you weren't believing Jesus for eternal life. You were believing him for a life that you could lose. And so if you didn't have an understanding of eternal security in some sense at the moment of trusting in Christ, then you weren't really saved. Notice I haven't mentioned anything about the cross. I haven't mentioned anything about believing that Christ died for your sins or believing that Christ died to provide forgiveness for your sins or justification. And for that reason, that view of the gospel, which came to dominate the grace evangelical society, uh, people like Bob Wilkin, John Niemela, who was with Chafer Seminary, and a couple of others who were with Chafer Seminary, which led to a major split at Chafer Seminary, which is one reason the seminary moved to uh, New Mexico, that this view of Hodges and Wilkin and Niemela and several others was came to be called the crossless, the, the crossless gospel. The crossless gospel. Because you weren't believing that Jesus died on the cross. That's not part of what Jesus offered in John 5. He offered eternal life. Well, in my view, he's not offering the cross yet because he hasn't gone to the cross yet. It's before the cross. So these were some of the problems. Now, the reason I'm bringing that out is because of the way that we're going to see Paul present the gospel to these Jewish unbelievers in this particular chapter coming up. But as we get into this, we have to also go back and review just a little bit our understanding of these passages. I think it's so important. I stressed this a week ago Sunday on the importance of Bible memory. It's important to memorize Scripture, and uh, we're in the middle of, I've, I sent it out this morning, and then I need to make it convert it to a PDF file before we can post it up on the Dean Bible website, a list of Bible verses to memorize. But not, I haven't included it on in that list of verses, but understanding how to present the gospel to someone who has some understanding of the Old Testament, or maybe in the process of talking to them, about the gospel, you can just focus in on having your little quiver of, uh, of arrows to shoot in, in evangelism, five key prophecies from the Old Testament that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Paul is looking at a couple of them here. We looked at verse 33 in Acts, uh, Acts 13.33, there is a quote, quotation there from Psalm uh, 2, uh, Psalm 2, verse, uh, verse 7. Psalm 2, verse 7, the quote, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And I pointed out that this term begotten uh, isn't just found here in Psalm 2, 7, but it is found in, I believe, the reading of Psalm 110, verse 3. I pointed this out last time and the week before. I don't have the slide again this week. But it should be translated, From the womb of, dawn, of the dawn, I have begotten you. The I pointed out the Hebrew word, which would just be made up of consonants in the original text. If it has one set of vowels added to it, it means something else, which is how it was changed in the Masoretic text so that it, it, the way it stands in most of our English translations, it really doesn't make any sense. But if you add a different set of vowels to it, then that particular word uh, then is, is the root word yelled for giving birth to or begotten, and then it would be translated from the womb of the dawn, I have begotten you. Psalm 110 clearly is a messianic psalm, related to the elevation of the Messiah to the right hand of God the Father. Uh, as it states in Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And the point is that the, the Messiah ascends, sits at the right hand of the throne of God in a position of passive waiting for the kingdom to be given, which is given by God the Father, the Ancient of Days, as stated in Daniel chapter 7, just prior to the Son of Man coming to the earth to defeat the kings of the earth. 
and then establishing his kingdom. Psalm 2 focuses on that battle that takes place, and Psalm 2-7 is the announcement, the validation by God of his previous announcement that the Messiah is the Son of God, in, and that is ha- possessing full deity. That's the background. So in Acts 13.32, Paul says, We declare to you glad tidings, all one word, evangelizo, meaning to give the gospel, give good news. Acts 13.33 mentions, as I just said, Psalm 2.7, connecting that, that this Jesus is the anointed one of God who possesses full deity and will at one time in the future come to establish his kingdom. Then he goes to another verse. We touched on this last time in verse 35. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, notice how what David is doing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit is he is he's stringing together two or three different prophecies to show how they're fulfilled in Jesus with reference to the promise, the covenant given to David. And so when I, this is a quote from Isaiah 55, 3, which is the promise uh, of God to Israel, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Um, this is a uh, promise fulfilling the Davidic covenant, the, that God promised an eternal house, an eternal kingdom, and an eternal throne to David. Okay, that much we've covered uh, several times. This Isaiah 55.3 states, I will make an everlasting covenant with you. And then there's sort of an appositional stop there. That everlasting covenant then is defined by this phrase, the sure mercies of David. Now, as we, as I went back through this, and I added a few verses to this last time, that promise to David was a promise of an eternal house, an eternal kingdom, an eternal dynasty, eternal throne. And David was from the root of, uh, the, of his father, Jesse. Now, Isaiah 11.1 and 11.10 makes it clear that there will come forth in the future. Now, first of all, Isaiah is written about 720 B.C. He's in the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom has fallen, and he is warning, has warning prophetically that the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, which is still ruled by a king who is a descendant of David, that the southern kingdom will be destroyed by Babylon, and Babylon wasn't even dreamt of at this point as a mighty kingdom. Assyria was the mighty kingdom at the time Isaiah wrote, that Babylon Babylon would come and destroy the southern kingdom. And that would, in effect, cut down the tree of David so that all that would be left would be a stump. And so what would happen then if the Davidic tree is cut down, nothing left but a stump? Will God remain faithful and fulfill his promise to Israel? And so he's speaking prophetically after the tree of David his descendants, after that's cut down, there will come forth in the future a rod from the stem of Jesse. That stump is going to put forth a little green shoot. A branch will grow up out of his roots. Verse 10 then states, and in that day, and usually when you run into this phrase, in that day, in the prophets in the Old Testament, it's relating something to the future day of the Lord or future end-time events. In that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. So what we learn from this verse, this is an important messianic prophecy, what we learn from this verse is that a descendant of David is going to attract Gentiles to himself when he comes to establish his kingdom for Israel. Now, there are going to be certain characteristics of this, and as I make this transition into these next verses, some of which I looked at last time, I want you to pay attention to the word righteousness. I think that if, in the context of presenting the gospel to unbelievers, and I think particularly to those who should know the Old Testament, 
that it's important to recognize that righteousness is really the critical issue in the Old Testament. We'll see a verse in just a minute. Job says, how can a man be righteous before God? The word righteousness in both the New Testament as well as the Old Testament really has two connotations. One connotation is experiential righteousness, that is doing good things, living a just life according to the standards that God has set forth in his word. But even though human beings do good things, we are inherently flawed. This is a problem that we see, and it's stated again and again, even in the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament. So while man can accomplish certain good things, and there's nothing wrong with doing good to our fellow creatures, but there is something wrong with thinking that doing that good is what curries favor with God. That's the problem. It's not wrong to do good things to help people. It's wrong to think that somehow that becomes the basis of our salvation. So pay attention to the word righteousness as we go through these passages. Jeremiah 23 gives us a promise related to David as the branch, the branch from the stump of Jesse. Behold, the days are coming. Notice again, it's prophetic. It's looking to the future. It's eschatological from the Greek word eschatos, meaning last things or last days. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. So the branch of righteousness is distinct from David. He's raising to David as a result of those promises David made in, God made to David in a eternal covenant. Remember, we saw that back in, uh, uh, verse 55-3 in Isaiah. I will make an everlasting covenant. This is an irreversible permanent covenant with David. So God has made this promise and he is going to fulfill it by raising up someone who is described metaphorically in this passage as a branch. He's a righteous branch. The, it's translated into English in the New King James Version here as a branch of righteousness, but but it should be understood as an attributive genitive, which basically means it functions like an adjective. He's going to raise to David a righteous branch. That means that righteousness is going to be an inherent, intrinsic character quality of this individual. He is going to be right, truly righteous, inherently, intrinsically righteous, not like human beings, but he, at his very core of the character, the branch will be righteous. He's then described as a king. So royalty is ascribed to him, which is, makes sense since he is a descendant of David, one who fulfills the promise of an eternal throne, eternal uh, dynasty, uh, a king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness on the earth. Because he is inherently, intrinsically righteous, his rule will be righteous. And this will be the only time in history that we have a truly righteous ruler in any kingdom. There are no righteous rulers today. There are all rulers today are unrighteous to one degree or another. But if you don't have an understanding of man as being inherently flawed, or as Christians describe it, as sinners, you don't understand human nature to be flawed because of sin, then you constantly think human beings can bring in a perfect environment. That thinking is called utopianism. It has never worked and will never work because human beings are flawed. And as long as they are flawed, they will always fail when they govern and they are susceptible to power lust and to the abuses of power. Our founding fathers understood this. This is why in the Constitution they established three branches of government as checks and balances against one another so that no one branch would rise above the other two. They really designed these branches so the government would get stuck and not work. 
They didn't design it so the government would, you know, passing laws and changing things would be easy. But today we live in a world where people get frustrated. They operate on a false assumption that people are basically good and those who govern are basically good and have our best interests at heart. But they don't. They have their best interests at heart. They want to accumulate power and take it away from the people. And be very careful. Watch today what's happening over the weekend in uh, Colorado. Uh, the state legislature passed a law that is extremely restrictive when it comes to the Second Amendment. This is just putting their, the camel's nose under the tent. This is exactly the pattern that was followed in Soviet Russia, in Nazi Germany, in Venezuela, and many other totalitarian countries where as soon as you can disarm the people, then the only ones who have uh, uh, power and guns and the ability to threaten them is, is the government. And so the people then become victims and this, and so the government can then do whatever they wish to do. We constantly hear lies, and they are just so egregious from the liberal anti-gun left. I mean, I'm, I'm still just vibrating over one I heard this morning. I was listening to Fox News, and there was a debate, and I don't even know who the people were, but the anti-gun woman on the on the left made the statement at the end, she just threw it out there, and this is the kinds of stuff that debaters do to poison the well. And she says that, oh, but the big issue is these these large capacity magazines, because with these large capacity magazines, you can fire two to ten rounds a second. Now, number one, magazines have nothing to do with how fast any weapon will fire. And number two, Nobody, we're not talking about fully automatic weapons. The anti-gun crowd always talks about uh, semi-automatic weapons as if they're fully automatic uh, firearms. Now, a fully automatic weapon is like a machine gun. You hold back the trigger and it fires extremely rapidly, as fast as it can, until all the bullets are, are shot from the magazine and in, in rapid-fire sequence. And it may fire as much as, um, you know, it's, 80, 100, up to 1,000 rounds a minute. But a semi-automatic only fires as rapidly as somebody can flex their trigger finger. And very few people can flex their trigger finger that fast. They may get two or three shots off in a second or a second and a half, but they just can't keep that rate of fire up for very long. It's not the magazine that's the problem. In fact, back when they had the um, uh, the assault in uh, uh, in Colorado, in Denver, where was that? Um, Columbine. They went in with with twenty, thirty magazines because that was under the Clinton assault ban uh, law at the time. So they couldn't get high capacity magazines. They just carried a lot of magazines, and they learned how to uh, uh, fire ten rounds, drop a mag, put another one in, and fire ten mag, tape tape two magazines together, and pull them out and flip it around. Anybody who practices and learns this, you know, this limitation on magazines is is just smoke and mirrors. But it seems like the left is good at lying because their whole attempt is to destroy freedom. They do not understand freedom at all, and, and except they want it and you can't have it. We're only going to have righteousness in government when Jesus rules. Until then, we have to righteously restrain government and keep them out of our pockets and out of our homes. I don't think we're going to have much luck. I think that I've never in my life dreamed that this country would slide into uh, into anti-freedom mentality as fast as it has. And we better be prepared because people, by the, I think the vast majority of these people, uh, people in this country no longer want freedom, no longer care about freedom, and no longer want to pr- protect freedom. And what that is going to produce in this nation is going to be absolutely horrible. And if you're not prepared in terms of your soul and your character, then you will have an extremely difficult time because only the Word of God is going to give us the ability to survive. And if you want to have a model of how bad it can be, just read Josephus about what happened in Israel in the original 60s. Uh, once the Jewish revolt began, 
and the, the nation fragmented so much because of arrogance into all of these different uh, uh, different groups from the zealots and many, many others, that even as the Romans were storming the walls of the temple and storming into Jerusalem, these fragmented Jewish groups were as busy killing each other as they were the Romans. And that's exactly where we're headed. So be warned. The only time we have true righteous rule is when Jesus Christ, the Messiah, comes. Now, look at verse 6. In his days, Judah will be saved. So after, now this is Jeremiah, not Isaiah. Jeremiah writes at the time when Nebuchadnezzar has already invaded once. He's writing prior to the final destruction of uh, the kingdom of Judah, which in, in 586 B.C., and he has already announced that they're going to lose and that the Babylonians will destroy them. So now he's saying, but all hope is not lost. There will yet be a future, and God is going to be true to his promises. And so in his days, in the days of the branch, the righteous branch, Israel, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell safely. There will be a restoration of the nation in safety. That's not today. We're seeing the, the beginning of the return, but not this restoration yet. And when the branch, the righteous branch rules, he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Now, in, in the Hebrew, this could be translated a couple of different ways because the verb is left, is, is, there's no verb there. So it could be read as it is literally, uh, Yahweh, Tzedekinu, uh, which means Yahweh, our righteousness, but it could be, could have ellipsized the verb. This is how the 1986, the more up-to-date translation of the uh, uh, Jewish Publication Society Old Testament Scriptures, the Tanakh, states it, the Lord is our vindicator. Now, they've inserted the, the is there, which is viable, but this form of the word uh, tzedek, does not mean vindication. It's not translated that. It's the same form you have in verse 23, 5, uh, raised to David a branch of vindication. No. Same form of the word. You can't say that. It is, you've got to be consistent in your translation. The reason the 1986 translation, uh, Tanakh changes that is to get away from the implications of righteousness. That's what I'm getting ready to show you as we go through these Old Testament passages is the issue is whose righteousness gets us to heaven. And we're going to see that the Old Testament makes it clear that the righteousness that gets Jews in the Old Testament, anybody in the world, even in the New Testament, the righteousness that gets us to heaven is the righteousness of the Messiah. And that's clear from the Old Testament. The 1917 Jewish Publication Society translation of the Tanakh stated it very clearly, the Lord is our righteousness, and that translation is consistent historically with the various targums or commentaries that had been written in Jewish history on uh, Isaiah chapter, I mean, excuse me, on Jeremiah chapter 23 and also Jeremiah 33. So it's very clear that the translation that I'm suggesting is the historic translation of the verse, and it's only in modern times, let me suggest, that it's been shifted to avoid the Messianic Christian interpretation. But that was also the historic Jewish interpretation. Jeremiah 33, 14 through 17 mirrors that verse. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And then he begins to talk about David. So the promise he's talking about here takes us back to the Davidic covenant. How important it is that when we are helping people understand the Bible to ground what we're teaching in these promises, these covenants that God made to Abraham, to David, to the Jewish people in terms of their eternal possession of the land, that that is an eternal covenant, and as well the, the new covenant in Jeremiah 30. Uh, 33, which this is a lead-up to. Verse 15, he says, In those days and at that time I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. Same phrase, a righteous branch. 
He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell safely. And this is the name by which she, uh, she will be called, the Lord our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Now, Jeremiah 33 goes on, and we'll get back to it in just a second, but I wanted to insert this statement from Zechariah. Uh, Zechariah is a one of the most significant prophetic uh, prophets of the Old Testament. And in Zechariah we read, Hear, O Joshua the high priest, this is one of the last three books written in the Old Testament, written after the return from the exile in Babylon, Hear, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. For behold, God is speaking, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. So we've moved from the pre-exilic announcement that God is going to raise up a branch from the root of Jesse to now calling the Messiah the branch. He is my servant, the branch. Zechariah 6.12 says, reiterates this, then speak to him saying, thus says the Lord of hosts saying, behold the man whose name is the branch. From his place he shall branch out and he shall build the temple of the Lord. This is speaking of the future temple built during the messianic age. Jeremiah thirty-three eighteen on down through 22 continues to talk about God's fulfillment of the covenant to David. Look at verse 20. This is the word of the Lord to Jeremiah that says, the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, which means as long as there's day and night, then you can't break that. It's like uh, what, uh, you know, as long as the sky is blue and the grass is green, uh, this covenant is going to stay in effect. It's just a metaphorical, picturesque way to say that the covenant with David will never be, uh, never be broken. Ezekiel 21:27 says overthrown overthrown this is Ezekiel's cry of woe at the defeat and destruction of Jerusalem uh, God is saying overthrown overthrown I will make it overthrown it shall be no longer until he comes whose right it is that is a reference to the Davidic king the branch who will rule in Jerusalem and God promises in Ezekiel 34:23, I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them. My servant David, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And it goes on in Hosea chapter 3, verse 4. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, that's this period of time, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim, Afterward, the children of David shall return, that's what's going on now, and seek the Lord their God and David their king, that is yet future. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Jeremiah 30, verses 8 through 9, For it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will break his yoke from your neck, I will burst your bounds, foreigners shall no more enslave them, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Now, a couple other verses that we could go to for time's sake. I'm going to pass over them. Psalm 132, 12, and 17 again talks about the future with David. Psalm 89, 29, 36, and 37 covers that. And then in Acts 13, 35, Paul brings in a third passage. He's brought in Psalm 2, 7. He's brought in Isaiah 55, 3. And now he brings in Psalm 16, 10. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. Now, in the Greek Orthodox Church, there's a weird distortion of this verse. One of the most macabre things I've ever witnessed is going into uh, the Russian Orthodox churches in Kiev. Uh, New Year's Eve, we, many years ago now, I guess, maybe 10 years ago, went with um, uh, Myers and New Year's Eve and went into one of the big Greek Orthodox churches. And the patriarchs or the priests who have died in centuries past uh, have their bodies sort of, uh, in, not, they're not embalmed, but they are mummified in these small, they're not much bigger than this, uh, small glass caskets. And you go into the Orthodox churches, you can hardly see because of all of the smoke from the incense, and you can hardly breathe. And uh, they're chanting in Greek, 
And people are actually crawling up on top of these caskets and kissing the glass, uh, hoping for some sort of miracle. You see the same kind of thing down in the tombs at the Lavra, which is the local monastery there. And because many of the uh, very ancient founders of that Orthodox community are buried there and there, they have their little caskets out there. And they're basically mummified, whatever the, the, the conditions are. And, and the, what the priest will do is tell you, see, they go to Psalm uh, 16.10 and says, uh, they, they don't see, they're holy ones, they don't see corruption. Wait a minute, their body looks pretty decayed and corrupt to me. But they haven't rotted. They have just it's sort of a natural mummification, maybe from the right conditions of the humidity or whatever it is down in those uh, caves. Uh, that's what's taken. That is just such a horrible distortion. Psalm 1610, David is speaking. And David is speaking about himself because he is convinced as he's going through problems that he will die but there will be a resurrection for him. But God the Holy Spirit, through inspiration with Paul, is bringing out another application. Now, he can do that, because Paul can do that, because it's under the inspiration of the Spirit. If you were to read Psalm 1610, you would not get the doctrine of resurrection out of it in the sense that it applies to Jesus. That comes under the divine inspiration, though, of uh, the Holy Spirit with the Apostle Paul. David is convinced that there will be a resurrection for himself and that he will not stay in the grave, but one day, someday, there will be a resurrection for him. And that is what he is talking about. That's the context of Psalm 16.10. But Paul, under the inspiration of Scripture, takes this and applies it to the resurrection of Jesus, that his body saw no corruption, no decay, no deterioration in the grave whatsoever because he was raised from the dead almost instantly after his death, three days later, but it was, all you know, considering the time frames, uh, wasn't hundreds of years or thousands of years. It was in just a matter of days he was resurrected and given uh, a new resurrection uh, body. So this is, was also stated by Peter in his message on the day of Pentecost, quoting from Psalm 16.10, he said, For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One, notice it's not a plural there, it's not Holy Ones, it's Holy One, singular, to see corruption or decay. Paul states it this way in Acts 13.36, For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep and was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. And he uses the word uh, diaphthora, which relates to bodily decay that comes at the time of, of death. He said David did see that. Now, he's not contradicting David's belief in a future resurrection, but he's saying David did indeed see corruption. But Jesus Christ did not. He applies this in verse 37, but he whom God raised up saw no corruption. So he's making the connection here. He's talked about the Davidic king who will come and sit at the right hand of God the Father, who will then defeat the enemies of God, uh, Psalm 2, and that when that happens, the sure mercies of David will be given to them. That's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And this is seen and validated and vindicated by the resurrection of Jesus Christ as prophesied in Psalm 16, verse 10. This he does in these these verses to establish that Jesus can do what he claimed to do because he had victory over physical death. So from that, Paul is going to draw a conclusion. Therefore, he says, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him... That is, by 
this man, Jesus, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified from the law of Moses. Now, what he is saying there is not that there were some things you could be justified for in the law of Moses. He said, you couldn't be justified by anything from the law of Moses, but from Jesus you will be justified. Now, in verse 38, he says, he preached to you the forgiveness of sins. This is the verb kat angelo, angelo, angelo rather, in the, in the Greek is a word to announce something. It's intensified with the prefix, and it means to proclaim or preach something. And it refers to preaching the gospel, as we see in 1 Corinthians 9.14, which reads, Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who proclaim the gospel, proclaim, preach here is katangelo. The gospel is the noun evangelion, preaching the good news, should live from the gospel. So preaching, this word katangelo, indicates proclamation of the gospel. Now, what is the proclamation of the gospel? Remember, I started the introduction by saying we've had this problem historically understanding the gospel. Does the gospel mean believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? And if you've truly believed, if you've genuinely believed, if you've rightly believed, then you're going to see a certain change in your life, and by that you will know that you believed. I don't know about you, but I think everybody in this room is smart enough to know if you believe something. It's real simple. It's not hard. But I mean, people will get all wrapped around the axle. Well, I'm not sure. Well, do you believe it or not? Yeah. Well, then, you know, that's it. It's over with. Well, I'm not sure. Well, you just said you were sure. I mean, I, quit being so self-absorbed. Get on with growing spiritually. Um, you, you you know you believe something or not. If you're sitting in the chair, you believe the chair would hold you up. You didn't think about it. You just sat down. But the sitting when you were there, that belief was 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 present there. So you know that you believe it. If you think it's true, it's true. So that's all that's said. And and notice that's the only condition that's stated here. They preach the forgiveness of sins. Notice he doesn't say we preached eternal life. Wow. Wait a minute. Has Paul got a different gospel than the Apostle John? No, the gospel manifests itself. There are different facets. One facet relates to eternal life. Another facet relates to regeneration, becoming a new creature in Christ. Another facet relates to redemption. Another facet relates to forgiveness. There are different facets to the gospel, but but proclaiming any one of those facets is proclaiming the gospel. If you believe in Jesus for forgiveness of sins, you don't have to believe him again for eternal life. And you don't have to believe him again for redemption. And you don't have to believe him again for propitiation. And you don't have to believe him again for reconciliation. They're all different aspects of the same gospel. But Zane Hodges comes around and says, no, they're all wrong. You just have to believe in Jesus for eternal life. But if you believe in Jesus for anything else, you're not saved. Now, that's as phony a gospel as John MacArthur's gospel. And this is what caused such a tremendous split in the free grace movement about five or six years ago and why you've had a lot of problems there because we're just fragmenting as badly as the Jews did. It's still the same arrogance problem. And we're shooting each other rather than moving forward and winning the war. We're just losing our effectiveness. So the gospel is clearly stated here as related to the forgiveness of sins. Now, the word for forgiveness is aphasis. Aphasis means a release or a pardon, the cancellation of a debt, that that debt was wiped out. We studied that quite extensively in our study in Colossians chapter 2, that, that when Christ died on the cross, the debt was paid. So the issue now isn't, do you want to pay the debt or not? The issue now is, do you want to accept the payment of the debt or not? And when you accept it, then you get Christ's righteousness. So by him, by this man, 
Everyone who believes, not everyone who believes and continues to believe, not everyone who believes and has fruit, not everyone who believes and abides, not everyone who believes and goes to church or gets baptized or whatever else they want to add, but just simply faith alone. Everyone who believes is justified. It's a present tense for continuous action that if you believe you are justified, and that is the Greek word dikaiao, which means to, uh, it's a legal term here, to declare righteous before God. Everyone who believes is justified from all things, and you couldn't be justified from all things by the law of Moses. That's the sense of, of the verse. Now the question is, Job 9.2, Truly I know it is so, but how can a man be righteous before God. That is the real question. You want to focus the gospel? It's related to all of these things, but this is, I think, the core issue. How is a man righteous before God? It's the Hebrew word tzedek. Tzedek has to do with not only experiential righteousness, it's used to describe the good, the positive application of believers, but it also refers to the forensic or legal declaration of someone brought before before the judge the declaration of their righteousness, that they have met the standard of righteousness. They may not be righteous, but they are declared righteous. So Job asked the question, how can a man be righteous before God? Now, the answer doesn't have to do with doing righteous deeds. Why? Because at the very core of our being, we'll see from these passages in Scripture, we're viewed as so flawed that while we can do relative righteous things, we can do things when compared to other people, they're good, but in terms of the absolute righteousness of God, they're not. Isaiah 64, verse 5 using the same word, and I'm going to quote from the 1918 translation, the Jewish Publication Society translation of the Tanakh, and we are all become as one that is unclean. Now, when it says we are all, who's left out? Does that include Isaiah? Yes, that includes Isaiah. That includes every single human being. It doesn't say we who are disobedient are all unclean. It's we are all absolute unclean. And all our righteousness is, not all our unrighteousness is, but all of our righteousness, all our tzedakah, all the good deeds that we do are as a polluted garment. In other words, it, it's, it's stained and we cannot gain favor with God, no matter how good our deeds are. That's what Isaiah says. Now, God is described as being absolutely righteous, and in Psalm 9, 8, we're told that he will judge the world by righteousness. That's his absolute standard. So if our righteousness is as filthy rags, and he's going to judge us on the basis of our righteousness, we're not in a good place. He will administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness, another form of the word for righteousness. Now, Psalm 11, 7 says, for the Lord is righteous, he loves righteousness, and he hates unrighteousness, he hates wickedness. So he can only approve that which is righteous. But if all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, how can God ever approve us? The answer is given in Genesis 11, the standard, the benchmark is Isaiah. We've studied this many, many times. Abraham, this is a a sort of a parenthetical verse reminding the reader of what had occurred many years before in the life of Abraham. He had already believed in the Lord, and it was accounted or imputed to him for righteousness. Righteousness comes by faith, not by works. It was because Abraham trusted God, not because of what Abraham did, that he was given righteousness. Now pay attention. In Isaiah 53, one of the most significant messianic passages, we're told how God deals with the unrighteousness of man and how he is going to justify these sinners 
the unrighteous that are mentioned by Isaiah in Isaiah 64.5. It talks about the Messiah. Turn there. We've gone through this in detail. I didn't put all of the verses up on the screen, so you might want to turn there just so we can pick up the whole context so it doesn't look like I'm just cherry-picking. Isaiah 53 starts off, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? These are rhetorical questions asked of a by a future generation of Jews who have come to understand the big failure in the life of Israel, and that is rejecting God's Messiah. Who's believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, it's talking about a person, this this servant, that is the righteous servant, the Davidic branch, the righteous branch. For he shall grow up before him. The first he is the servant, the second him is is God. He shall grow up before him as his tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form. You see, that root imagery takes us right back to the root coming out of the stump of Jesse. <coughs> the, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> the dry ground indicating that it's not wet, moist. There's nothing there to indicate that it's going to produce life. Nothing special about him. He has no form or comeliness. There's no physical attractiveness about him. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He would never make the sexiest man alive on the front cover of the New York Times or People magazine. He wouldn't make the top 100. There wasn't anything special about his physical appearance that set him apart from anybody else. When he walked into town, nobody paid attention to him because he looked like an everyday human being. There's no comeliness or beauty that we should desire. And then we come to verse 3. He was despised and shunned by men, a man of suffering, familiar with disease. As one who hid his face from us, he was despised. We held him of no account. Now, you hear the word disease and sickness through here. That's the metaphor related to sin. In the parallelism in the verses, we see that disease is, is parallel to sin. I'll point that out. It was our sickness that he was bearing, verse 4. It's not talking about cancer and leukemia and and influenza and the measles and the mumps and all the other little diseases that we get. It's the core corruption, which is sin. It's our sickness that he was bearing. It's substitutionary. He bore our sin. He took our suffering upon himself. So the key idea that runs through this is you have this one individual, the servant, who takes upon himself our problem. He solves the problem. That's substitutionary. It's the same picture you have in the Day of Atonement when the sheep, the lamb is brought out, where the goats are brought out, where the high priest places his hands upon the goats, recites the sins of the nation, they're transferred to the to the goat, and that is a picture that the goat is going to that's going to be sacrificed, and the other ones sent out into the wilderness are bearing the sins of the people. But the blood of the bulls and goats couldn't permanently take away sin. But this is the servant of God who is going to permanently take away sin. He bears our sickness, our suffering that he endured. We accounted him plagued, smitten, and afflicted by God. It is God who is bringing the judgment upon the servant. Isaiah 53, 5. Because he was wounded because of our sins. What the servant would go through was not because of what he did, but because of our sin. Now, notice it shifted from talking using the disease metaphor to talking about sin and iniquity. Because that's the real problem. Uh, he's wounded because of our sins. He's crushed because of our iniquity. The crushing here is something that would produce death. It's not something that would be a non-fatal crushing. He bore the chastisement, the punishment. So he takes our place in terms of a punishment, a penal substitution. He bore the chastisement that made us whole. His bearing chast- our, our punishment is what makes us whole. By his bruises, we were healed. Healing is just a metaphor for the, the, the flaw of sin and the fact that it needs to be solved. 
Then again, it talks about the universal flaw and failure of the human race. We all went astray. We all except for the righteous Jews. No, it doesn't say that because the right, all of our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. Again, Isaiah knows no exceptions. We are all flawed. We all went astray like sheep, each going his own way, and the Lord visited upon us. No, no. He visits upon him. He doesn't punish us for our iniquities. He punishes him for our iniquities. The guilt of us all, our condemnation, is laid upon him. Verse 7, he was maltreated, He was yet he was submissive. He did not open his mouth like a sheep being led to slaughter. Incidentally, all of this is a translation from the Jewish Publication Society, Tanakh of 1918. He was uh, like a sheep being led to slaughter, like a ewe dumb before those who shear her. He did not open his mouth. This is fulfilled in Jesus. He does not cry out until on the cross when he bore the sins of the world, when God the Father imputed to him the sins of the world, darkness covers the face of the earth, and he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Until then, with all the beatings, the whippings, everything else, he he didn't utter a word. Verse 8, By oppressive judgment he was taken away. Who could describe his abode? Though he was cut off from the land of the living, through the sin of my people who deserved the punishment. See, the sin of my people or Israel, my people, my people, my people, all the way through the Old Testament, my people always refers to Israel, never refers to anybody else. And here the prophet is saying through the sin of my people, they're not righteous. Even the righteous ones, their righteousness is like filthy rags. Verse 11, this is the key verse. He shall see the labor of his soul. He, the first he here is God the Father. He's looking upon what is the spiritual transaction, the substitutionary payment on the cross. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. That is what we call propitiation. That is the essence of what is depicted in the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. God's justice being satisfied by the blood that is put on the mercy seat uh, over the broken Ten Commandments. And then Isaiah says, by his knowledge, that is by knowing about the, the, the servant, by righteous servant. See, the servant is righteous, but the people aren't. Even their righteous deeds are like filthy rags, but the servant's righteousness is true righteousness. And by his righteousness, by my righteous servant, many shall be justified. Why? Because he shall bear their iniquities. So how do we get the righteousness of God, as Job asked? Because it's got to be given to us, and it's given to us by the one who pays the penalty for our sin. That's Isaiah chapter 53. That's all Old Testament scriptures. has nothing to do with the New Testament, except the New Testament tells us how it's fulfilled in Jesus. So this is what Paul says in Acts 13, 38, and 39, that this man is proclaimed to you, By this man is proclaimed to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified, that is, receives righteousness, is declared righteous from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. The law of Moses couldn't do it. So we see in a couple of other passages, Isaiah 42.6, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. See, we are called, even in the Old Testament, Israel was called in righteousness. And it's God who keeps them. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. See, that's what's getting ready to happen here in, in, um, in Acts 13. Because the Jews, some of them are going to respond, but most of them are going to reject. And so Paul is going to turn from the Jews because they have willingly rejected the offer of eternal life and the offer of forgiveness and the offer of justification. And he's going to turn to the Gentiles because the gospel is to be a light to the Gentiles. Isaiah 49.6, though, says, Indeed, he says, It's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. See, that's too narrow a focus for salvation. You're not just there to save the Jews. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, that gives us an understanding of how the gospel is presented from the Old Testament. 
going through all of the prophecies and weaving them together, and we have to know that to be effective witnesses, to understand these things. Write notes in your Bible, show how the, these verses connect together. Now, next time we're going to come back and look at the reaction, and then we're going to come to one of those wonderful verses it's going to really connect with where we're going on, on Romans on Thursday night. Romans, we're going to get into predestination and election with Romans 8.28 and 29. And one of the verses that gets brought up a lot is the verse that we're going to see in Acts 13, which reads, Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Sounds like they're predestined, Right? wrong. We'll see it next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening. We pray that we'd be challenged to be more effective witnesses for you, knowing your word, knowing how, the go- how to present the gospel many different ways to many different individuals that we might do the best we can to clarify the gospel, knowing all along that it's not up to us, it's up to the Holy Spirit to make it clear to the one who is listening. We pray that you would challenge us with With this in Christ's name, amen.